righty. At this time, I want to invite you to take your copy of God's Word and turn in it to James chapter 5 as we read verses 7 through 12. This larger train of thought began in verse 1, and we looked last week at verses 1 through 6. And here we come then to the therefore, in view of what came before this. So James 5, verses 7 through 12. We read as follows. Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and the late rains. You also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remained steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. But above all, my brothers, do not swear either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath. But let your yes be yes and your no be no, so that you may not fall under condemnation. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of the living God. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord endures forever. Let us pray. Almighty God, we thank you for this passage. We thank you for this book. We ask that by your spirit we indeed might be established and built up, that we may prove to be genuine, that we may be found in Christ to be ready to stand on the great day of his coming. Be with us now. Grant that we would Steady and steel ourselves for the life ahead. We ask this in his name. Amen. Perhaps you've heard these theological sounding names or words to describe the church or, or the Christian life, for example. You, you, you may have heard of the church militant as juxtaposed against the church triumphant. Have you heard those terms before? Even if you don't know what they are, have you heard those terms? I, I hope so. The church militant refers to now and the earth, and we, 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 we struggle and we strive, and, 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 and there's opposition to us in places, and, and life is not easy. And then the church triumphant is what is to come in which there's victory. And, and, and then speaking of the Christian life, perhaps you've heard of the victorious Christian life. 
especially coming out of the Keswickian tradition uh, that, that informs uh, dispensationalism. But maybe you've heard of the victorious Christian life. Sure you have. What does the victorious Christian life supposedly look like? Like a complete routing of the forces of the devil in your life, right? Like a complete routing of any of his influence around you in your sphere even. That if I'm living by the Spirit, if I am living by faith, then the victorious Christian life looks like I've got the devil on the run all the time around me. Okay, I, I, I don't think that that's an accurate picture of life because I don't think that's what we see in the Bible. And, and I think it's a recipe for despair because the devil may lose a battle, but he's real quick to get back on his feet, isn't he? And he presses the attack a lot. No, um, one of the things that... Mature Christians understand, and I'm hoping that you're in that category, and if so, my hope and prayer is that what I'm about to say is just encouragement and reminder. But for those of you who are not aware, sometimes, and, and I hope there's encouragement in this, sometimes victory is simply surviving. Living to fight another day. Consider the American Revolution. George Washington, General Washington knew they could not head-to-head -head beat the British. But as long as the Continental Army did not break, the revolution was alive. Okay? Consider what many believed to be one of the most strategically important battles in, in history, especially at least in, in, in European history, uh, the Battle of Waterloo. It's, hopefully, it's, you, you know what I'm talking about. Napoleon was, was one of the most brilliant military strategists in history ever. And he was... Fighting a coalition of forces led by the Duke of Wellington. And you know what the Duke of Wellington's strategy basically boiled down to? Hold the line and don't get obliterated until the Prussians can get there. And it worked. 5 p.m., France is winning. 7 p.m., the Prussians show up, and the rest is history. Now, the Christian life is a life of being assailed by three forces. The world, the flesh, the devil. The Christian life is a life of conflict in this world. We will have trouble in this world. That trouble does not always come from external forces. Like I said, one of our great threats is the flesh. We have to fight against ourselves and our sinful nature 
just as much as we have to fight against the forces of the devil. And there is no such thing as a retreat. We, we take retreats as times of spiritual refreshment, but even there we have to fight the Christian life. And the victorious Christian life does not mean that you have somehow successfully routed the devil or sin or your fallen nature. Sometimes, oftentimes, most times, the victorious Christian life means that you are standing and holding firm in the face of a, that opposition. Holding firm till what? Till a force far greater than the Prussians arrives. In James, the doctrine of the Christian life, like the rest of the Bible, it's, it's a process of growth. A process of stumbling in many ways, like he says. But it's a process of growth, much like a plant. So he, multiple times throughout this book, uses the illustration of, of a farmer or farming, of, of that seed planted in the ground that grows. He uses it multiple times to describe the fact that as a Christian... You may have a, 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 a once-for-all-time moment of epiphany where, where, where you realize your need for a Savior and you come to Jesus, but you don't have a once-for-all-time moment of, of, of realization in which your Christian life is actualized. You live it out in the muck and the mire, and it is a process. We call this progressive sanctification. That's, that's the label that our tradition refers to this idea that we grow from being newborn in Christ into Christian maturity of Christ-likeness progressively. We stumble, we fall, we win some battles, we lose some battles, but progressively over time, the Holy Spirit works in and through us and we become mature. Now, if you go back to James chapter 1, verse 2, he commences this letter by telling us to count it all joy, brothers, when we face trials of various kinds. For we know that the testing of our faith produces, what does it produce? Steadfastness. The very thing we need to live the Christian life with greater conviction, greater empowerment to be victorious. And again, victorious means simply withstanding and standing against the tide. The trials that we face are all around us and as he goes on in the rest of these verses, verses 3, 4, and following, it takes wisdom. 
to see God's sanctifying purposes in the fact that we still have all these troubles and trials. And that these trials serve a purpose for us. And that because there's a purpose in the trials, we can have joy in their midst. Not happy necessarily that we're having the problem. Yay, I got cancer. No. But even in the midst of the cancer, we can have joy that even this has purpose and meaning. And so, he's been building his case for a practical faith. A faith that is expressed in its words and actions. That's lived out. That's real and vital. And then he comes to chapter 5. In which now he's prepared to address what was probably in the minds of his readers the acute problem. They are being oppressed. They're being marginalized, they're being exploited, they're being taken advantage of, they're being wronged in every way imaginable. And so James dons the garb of a Old Testament prophet and he pronounces an oracle of judgment against the cultural halves of the day who were doing harm and injustice to the people of God. And now, he then turns his attention back to his beloved brothers and sisters. Notice how many times in this passage he says, brothers, drawing attention to the affinity and affection he feels for them. Jesus is a sympathetic high priest, and so his man James is a sympathetic pastor, and he wants the people of God to know that he understands and he's one of them. And what does he encourage them with? He encourages them with a concept that is common and prevalent in the New Testament. And it's the concept that I hope you will be encouraged by when you face your difficulties. And it is this. He encourages them with the news and the reminder that the Lord is at hand. Or to shorten that, he reminds them that Jesus is coming back. And in view of that, you can hold firm. You see, Wellington was waiting for the Prussians. The 101st was waiting for the 3rd Army. We're waiting for Jesus. Okay? The return of Christ is so significant that it's repeated in the New Testament it's mentioned more than 300 times. It's mentioned even more than the grace of God. In this passage alone, the return of Christ is mentioned or alluded to five times. This is super significant. Because oftentimes, what it is that we are hoping for and the thing that we're looking for is 
that jerk to be reassigned, someone to get promoted out, someone to graduate. We're, we're, we're looking for that immediate person to be gone. Maybe I know none of you would wish for someone to die. But in the little bell's palsy never hurt somebody, right? So, so maybe you're like, maybe... You... That's what we sometimes wish for and are hoping for. And then when we get all spiritual, we're, oh, I can't wait for heaven. I can't wait to be with Jesus. And those are all great and wonderful things. But do you know why the New Testament so frequently points, not to you going to heaven, but it says to have hope because Jesus is coming back. Do you, you want to know why it keeps talking about Jesus coming back as the ground of hope? It's because your salvation is not finished until Jesus comes back because that's when your dead body will be brought out of the ground and you will be glorified. And everything that Jesus promised and secured will be made new and delivered to his saints. You will inherit the earth as an embodied being just as you are now. You will be vindicated. That is why the New Testament so frequently points to the return of Jesus as the ground of our hope, as the ground of our confidence, as the ground of our endurance. The cavalry is coming. And at its head is our great captain, the Lord Jesus. He leads the heavenly host. And brothers and sisters, what a glorious day that will be. So the Lord is coming back. Therefore, in the face of nonstop trouble, opposition, difficulty, stressors, you can have hope. And because you can have hope, therefore, we ought to live a certain way. There's a certain manner of living that properly attends the hopefulness we have that the one who sees all, knows all, and is good and just and right and true. And there's a way of living that doesn't have confidence that that one is on his way. But then it gets even more. You see... James is, is not just worried about you and your personal emotional state. Well, he, he is. But James was a man. And, and, and he knew, just as you and I know and experience, that when we are under duress from whatever source, we are, let's just put it nicely, we're not the best version of ourselves, are we? Stress, trouble, when we are stressed out and worried, when, when our mind is preoccupied with, with, with something 
We, we, we never become friendlier. We never get kinder and sweeter and gentler. How, how do we always get when we are under duress? Tense. And when you're tense, how are you? Irritable. Cranky. Judgy. Mom, he's breathing at me. That's, that's what we do. Someone's looking at me funny. I get all, ooh, are they really looking at me funny? That's, we get that way when we're under duress. And so he wants to address this too. Because he understands that part and parcel of the Christian life is life in community. And it's not just him coming back for me or him coming back for you. It's him coming back for us. And on that great day, when he returns, the dead in Christ will rise and we will be there together. And so James offers up for us seven imperatives for how we need to live in community together in view of the fact that Jesus is coming back. Seven imperatives, and if you want to look at your text, I'll, I'm going to list them real, real quickly and, and, and uh, say just a couple words about each. But in verses 7 and 8, two different places, he says to be patient. Be patient then. You're experiencing all this stuff, and you're under duress, but help is on the way. So be patient. Watch how you're living. Don't lash out in anger. Bear, keep your bearing. Bear with gentleness. It's not resignation. It is not grumbling under your breath because you can't do it. You can't take action. No, it's tactical awareness help is on the way reinforcements are coming i am called to have a long suffering attitude toward the people and circumstances around me that are stressing me out that is what patience is and we need to learn it because we get all wound up and when we get all wound up, we springs start flying everywhere, and it's messy. And that's when you lose your wits about you and you lose your cool, and that's when the devil finds his opportunity to attack. Keeping your wits about you is part and parcel of being patient. The Lord has not abandoned you. He is on the way. Okay? But then the third imperative is verse 8. And in verse 8 he says, establish your heart. To establish it means to, to, to firm it up, to, to fortify it, strengthen it. The idea is that you've got this inner life 
that needs to be fortified and strengthened to withstand the onslaught. Because the onslaught from the world, the flesh, and the devil is never ending. And so how do we fortify or strengthen or build up our heart? It, it doesn't just happen. I would say unto you that fortifying your spiritual heart is kind of like building up your physical heart. Just a little personal story here, a little maybe too much info, a little too transparent. But I believe that in the transparency of light, there's accountability and then I'll do well. Remember several months ago, I, uh, I had to call in sick on Sunday because I had a reaction to my blood pressure medicine. My face blew up like a balloon. It was crazy. Well, I said unto myself, self, if my medicine's going to do that to me, I'm just not going to take any more blood pressure medicine. So the VA had given me a different kind of blood pressure medicine to take. I just didn't take it. Then when Kay goes up to the, the funeral she had in Minneapolis, I was moving stuff around in my room. And I said, oh, the, the VA had given me this blood pressure cuff. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to bust it out and, and sit and just, just see for kicks and giggles. I'm not going to tell you the number, but it was just below seek medical help immediately. Yeah. And then I had a resting heart rate, resting heart rate of like 108. Let me just tell you, that's, that's not good. Yeah. It's not good. And, and, and I'm like, you know, twice the man I used to be, right? So, I said, okay, you know, there ain't going to be no retirement. There's going to be no nothing. There's going to be, I'm just going to be dead. So, okay, I, I guess, and I hate taking medicine, but, I, I, you know, at least for now, I have to take, so I, I took my blood pressure medicine that moment. And, uh, and so, I've been, I've been walking and my knees which are which are messed up from the military they hurt they hurt so bad but but I'm walking and I and I've lo and I've lost a good bit of weight and I have a lot more to lose lose but but in 5 weeks time my resting heart rate has dropped to 88 much better still I have room to improve but that's much better right and my VO2 max is is, is much higher now. Which, so, in, in other words, my heart is strengthening again. I, I won't ever be what I was when I was 19 or 20. That's okay, I can accept that. But I have the memories of being like that, and that's cool enough, right? But, but my heart is strengthening because I'm taking intentional steps to do it. Your heart physically isn't just going to stay strong if you just sit around in the office and go home and sit around there and, you know, and just eat whatever you want. You, you've got to do something. In the same way, your spiritual heart, you have been given the new birth by the Holy Spirit. 
and he works and he wills according to his purpose. And, but, but in the Lord's sovereignty, this, this is where it's just so amazing and all we can do is marvel. It's not God's sovereignty juxtaposed against your actions. His sovereignty makes provision for and works with and through and in and by or even sometimes in opposition to your actions. But your actions matter. So strengthen your heart. The chief way is by controlling and increasing the spiritual and godly influences on your affections and attitudes and appetites. If your heart is continually being nurtured on worldly attitudes, appetites, and affections, then you're going to have a worldly outlook. And what matters most to the rich who are condemned in these first verses is getting their best life now. And the Christian life is not to be found in seeking your best life now. So regulate, control, dare I say if necessary, change what you are allowing to influence your affections attitudes, and appetites of your heart. Okay? So your inner life. Steadfast, establish your heart, and then he turns to our relationships. Do not grumble against one another. And I love that word grumble. The word uh, is the word also for groan. Surely there's someone that when you see them, you inwardly groan. Maybe it escapes your lips. You see someone walk through the door. Ugh. This is exactly what he's saying not to do with each other. How are we to do this? It is by being humble. And having enough self-awareness to know that it's true he or she may not be perfect and they are having their quirks. But guess what? Guess what? So do I. How can I, how can I with any degree of integrity ask you to be patient towards me? If I'm not going to be willing to be patient towards you. How? Unless I'm just so blindly selfish that I'm just entitled to your patience. And no. We are brothers and sisters. And we are given to each other as a family. So that in the bearing with one another we are strengthened. And so we are not to see each other as a source of groan. See each other as someone whom you need for your sanctification and as someone who needs you for theirs. The fifth imperative is in verse 10 when he says, by way of example, take the prophets. Did you know that's an imperative when he says take the prophets? That word take is an imperative there. 
you, you want to know right off the bat what you can't take the prophets if you're not familiar with them. And he mentions Job. You know Job. Do you know Job? Have you read Job? In other words, he's calling us before you can benefit from the lessons from the prophets in Job, you have to first be familiar with the prophets in Job. And it comes back to what Jesus said, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth, John 17, 17. Your sanctification is tied to the word of God. And we see here a great purpose for that hall, that great cloud of witnesses that the author of Hebrews writes about in, in, in Hebrews 11 and, and then sums it up with that title in 12.1. But all these prophets who came before and they had to persevere in the face of adversity because not a one of them had their message believed. It is incredible to me. Go read the book of Jeremiah. His life was terrible. I mean, from a human perspective, he's, they attempt to kill him, punish him. They, they, even after Babylon comes and takes them away, there's like this, the, the, the people that are left are vying for the scraps. And it's just terrible. But no one ever doubts that he's a prophet. So even the people who are trying to murder him Acknowledge that he's a prophet. That's how hardened and calcified their unbelief was. That they could acknowledge he's a prophet, but still want to kill him instead of listen to him. But he kept going. And Ezekiel, and, and all the minor prophets, and Isaiah. And of course we know that many of them met their demise. They persevered. And we count them blessed. And of course, Job and what he went through and what he gets revealed to him is God's person and character. And so that's what we are told here in verse 5, or oh, sorry, chapter 5, verse 11. You have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. And so, we know from the testimony of Scripture and then the experience of life that God is merciful. In other words, we can count on him to save us when he says he will save us. And so when he says he will come and deliver us and, and vindicate us, we can believe it and take it to the bank. And then verses... Verse 12 has the sixth and the seventh imperatives. When he says, do not swear, that's an imperative. And then he says, let your yes be yes and your no be no. That's another imperative. The let is the imperative. Okay, and, and we, we know that what happened in the first century, Jesus condemns it a lot, that people would actually get out of or seek to get out of their obligations by taking upon themselves vows that would obligate them in lieu of what they were supposed to be doing. Taking care of your parents is not glamorous and fun. And it doesn't win you any points in the eyes of the religious establishment. But giving money to the church, that, that gets you cred. And so 
they would not take care of their parents saying, oh, I'm sorry, I vowed to give this to the Lord. And Jesus condemns that kind of thing. But then here he goes even further, or, and so does Jesus. They go even further than that, and they talk about the whole cultural system of questionable integrity that requires people to buttress and fortify their words because they can't be counted on when they say yes or no to do it. So when you hear, let your yes be yes and your no be no, he's not condemning contracts and all that stuff. He's condemning a life of no integrity. Are you the kind of person that can be counted on so that when you say something, they know you mean it? So the Lord is coming. Be patient. Strengthen your heart because there's going to be some rough battles. Strengthen that heart. Don't grumble and, and find your brothers and sisters to be a source of groaning, but rather your allies. And you're to stand firm as one man, is what Paul says in Philippians. We are to reflect upon the memories and the stories of the saints of old and reflect. And focus on what it teaches us about God's character and how he's dependable. And I'm to be characterized by my integrity. That I'm going to speak plainly and honestly. And that the follow through of my actions will match what I've just said. We live that way in this age knowing that the rewarder, the vindicator, I even the punisher of all is coming he is at the door the cavalry is coming soon brothers and sisters so as you face your difficult situations hold fast be patient it's coming let's pray almighty God we thank you that you indeed are coming Jesus you are at the door, and for this we give you praise. We ask that we would be found faithful. That we would not seek to preempt your judgment. That we would not seek to, in our impatience, take your place as judge, as jury. And We ask, oh God, that we would be prepared. That we would make use of all of your appointed means of grace that we would monitor and regulate what is influencing the attitudes, affections, and appetites of our heart, that we would seek to stand firm in the day of trouble, and that we would encourage and build up our brothers and sisters next to us, not see them as a source of groaning and misery. And we ask, oh God, that you would be pleased to allow us to hold fast to the end. For it's for this, for Jesus went to the cross. It's in his name we pray. Amen.